0: Thank you Jake and Emily, wonderful singing this morning and I love that song and I remember as a a boy listening to Patch the Pirate and I believe that one was on Kidnapped on Island which was one of my favorite Patch the Pirate CDs. Well back in that day it would have been a tape player. If any of you remember what a tape player, some of you young people are like a tape player You know, where you had to stick the pencil into the little rotary thing in order to get the tape when it would get messed up and all that? Nowadays, we have the CDs and the digital downloads and all that. And uh, I guess the vinyls are back, and uh, people are are still selling vinyls. But uh, it was probably an old tape player that I listened to, Kidnapped on Island, and uh, Ron Hamilton's song, How Can I Fear? And a great memory. Uh, That was one of my favorites. And what a wonderful time singing, what a blessing that that was. Ron Hamilton is in the final stages of dementia, and uh, Shelly Hamilton posts regularly. I don't know if any of you follow Majesty Music, Shelly Hamilton on Facebook, but uh, what a powerful testimony of God's grace, uh, even as uh, Ron Hamilton is, uh, is in uh, the final stages of, of dementia. But John chapter 13, John chapter 13, I have been praying about uh, the theme Uh, For the year 2023, and uh, God keeps bringing me uh, back to a a passage of scripture, uh, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday, uh, we'll be bringing a a message uh, regarding that that theme, um, but I want to continue to to pray and uh, just be sure that that is uh, what the Lord would have us to focus on as our theme for the year 2023. But we will continue here in our study through the book of John, and the Lord willing, uh, be able to uh, finish up uh, this chapter. We are here in the, the setting of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. This is the Passover meal that Jesus shares with his disciples, probably on the Thursday night before Good Friday, and that's night, early morning, Good Friday, of course, being the the day of Christ's crucifixion. And then, of course, he was buried and then rose again on the third day, being Sunday. And why we worship on the first day of the week is because of Christ's resurrection. But we are probably looking at Thursday night, the Passover, feast of the Passover, the, the, the taking of the Passover lamb's life on Friday. But for the Galileans, which most of the disciples were from Galilee, Jesus being from Galilee, they would celebrate the Passover on the Thursday night, and then the next night, which would be Friday, would be when the Judeans, the southern part of Israel, when they would celebrate the Passover. So there would be consecutive nights when a Passover lamb was slain, and Christ would be the Passover lamb slain for the sins of the world on that Friday. And that's, again, why we often recognize Good Friday. So we are in this upper room. We are given a window by the inspiration of God, the preservation of God's Word, into this final Passover meal that Christ shares with his disciples. And there are several chapters here where Jesus is teaching and he's instructing and he is preparing the disciples for his departure, for his crucifixion, and for his resurrection and ascension and preparing them for their ministry that will continue in the years to come. And we left off a couple weeks ago in John 13, in verse 17, If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He has given them a lesson on humility. We spent a considerable amount of time on that a couple weeks ago. I won't review all of that. But he concludes in this final paragraph and in a climax statement, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Serving the Lord and serving others with humility is the true way to find peace and happiness and joy and satisfaction. Serving God with humility, serving others with humility and with grace is the true way to have peace and happiness joy and satisfaction that is completely antithetical and contrary to what the world teaches us today the world teaches us it's a dog eat dog world each person is living out their own truth you got to get your own and get out of the way because i'm if i have to to be able to do what i want to do get what i want and you have to celebrate my truth in the way that I tell you to, or you will get canceled or worse. So Christ was modeling, he was giving an example, and he was teaching and instructing all at the same time. And he says, true joy, true happiness, true satisfaction comes in serving others, in serving God with humility and with grace. But notice what he says in verse fourteen, or excuse me, verse 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him That sent me, down in verse 21, when Jesus had thus said he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is, to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. We see, first of all, this morning, the exit, the exit of a false disciple. Of course, that is Judas. Judas was not truly happy. He did not have the joy of the Lord. The contrast there from verse 17 to verse 18. I speak not of you all. Obviously a reference to Judas who did not know the joy of the Lord, who was not a true disciple of Christ, who had not truly repented of his sin and had placed his faith in Christ, who was not willing to deny himself, take up his cross and follow Christ. Judas was Judas was not Among the truly happy. He was in turmoil of his own soul under the direct influence of the devil himself. Verse number 2 of John 13. In supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Here we see Judas in turmoil under the direct influence of the devil He's not happy. He has bitterness of soul. He's in spiritual angst. He's under guilt. He is under literally spiritual oppression by the devil himself. He had been chosen by Jesus, but he was not a true disciple. There's a tension here. I understand that. There is a tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man that is apparent in the life of Judas. But we accept this by faith. We trust what God says in his word. We understand that Judas, having been chosen by Jesus to follow him, Judas in his heart rejected Christ and was not a true follower. He was a hypocrite of mammoth proportions, as we have spent some time talking about already. Yet we see an example of Jesus' love for Judas even at the same time realizing the wickedness and the deceitfulness of sin. It's a tension that we realize that we have to understand, that we have to accept, as hard as it is for us to comprehend it. Judas had made a personal, conscious choice to reject Jesus as his Savior. Hard for us to fathom. Jesus had called him as a follower, Judas had spent time with the apostles. He had been with Jesus. No one even suspected that Judas was the one who would betray him, as we just read. They're asking, who is it? Is it I? Is it I? Even the taking of the sop, the bread, which was soaked in probably a sauce or a mix of vinegar and water. We did a Seder meal with Dr. Craig Hartman at our former ministry ministry. And there was a particular step in or a stage in the Seder meal where we dipped the bread, and I'm not sure if this was the exact thing that he was giving Judas, but there was a particular, it was kind of like a horseradish type of sauce. And we dipped in that and took a, took a, a bite of that, and I mean, it just, whew! I mean, it burned all the way down, and my eyes were watering and all that. And it, it, from what I understand, it's a reminder of the bitterness of the slavery that the Jews had experienced in Egypt, and obviously in the Passover, the calling out from that slavery and the blood on the doorposts. Not sure if that is the exact timing, but he gave Judas the bread soaked in this sauce or a mix of vinegar and water or possibly some other spices, and that act of giving him that sop, giving him that bread, was actually an act of friendship what you would do typically in an act of honor, a display of love. Even in his final act toward Judas at the Last Supper at the Lord's table there, at that Passover meal, Jesus is still showing love for Judas. He's still pleading for him to repent, to turn from his sin. So there's this tension. God didn't cause Judas to Betray Jesus? Of course not. God doesn't tempt man to sin. Jesus gave Judas every opportunity to trust him, to repent of his sin, but Judas would not, even down to that very last act of Christ giving him that that sop, that bread. God knew, God knew in his sovereignty that Judas would reject Jesus. But it did not change Jesus' love for Judas, nor did it absolve Judas of his personal responsibility. God cannot be blamed for Judas's traitorous actions. We live with that tension, and it is a warning to us. Because there are people who sit in church, who grow up in Christian homes who hear the word of god preached and taught some even stand behind a pulpit or get up on a platform some even sing songs to the glory of god at least in their words but their heart having a form of godliness their heart is far from him hebrews 6 talks about this kind of apostasy and how it is trampling upon it is very it is trampling upon the very blood of christ it is a despicable evil, but it was also a fulfillment of a prophecy from Psalm 41 in verse number 9. Verse 18, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. That is Psalm 41, verse number 9, where David wrote, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against Against me, Probably a reference in the historical context to Ahithophel, David's personal advisor, who had gone with Absalom in rebellion against David and had given advice betraying David. And Ahithophel would go out and commit suicide, just like Judas would. So Psalm 41 and verse 9 is a Messianic prophecy. Fulfilled as Jesus gives this sop to Judas. And the scripture is fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And then we go down and we're going to pick up again in verse 21. And we see there that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. This was an agitation, a stirring of Jesus' spirit. Humanly speaking, there was a burden on Jesus' heart. What was that burden for? What was that stirring and that agitation all about? His spirit was stirred up by the thought of the betrayal of one of his closest followers. We see the heart of Jesus again. We see the humanity, but we see the compassion. We see the love Many of us, if not all of us, have at one point or time been betrayed by someone who we were close to, who hurt us in some particular way. It might have been a family member, it might have been a good friend, and we know that feeling of betrayal, and it hurts. It's like a dagger sometimes. It, it pricks even down to the very soul, down to our very spirits. And so in that sense, Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He understands even what it is like to be betrayed by someone who is one of your closest friends or followers. Christ understands that. Christ has experienced injustice. And yet we see the compassion of Christ. We see his love for Judas, even down to the very end. And of course, in verse twenty-four, who speaks up? Peter. Peter speaks up. So they're beginning to wonder who it is that Jesus is referring to, because in verse twenty-one, Jesus said, "Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me." They begin to look at one another and doubting who it was that he spoke. And in the parallel passages and uh, the other gospel accounts, they're asking the question, "Is it I?" And then the one leaning on Jesus' bosom in verse 23, that's the Apostle John. John will not mention his name in his gospel, except by making reference to the one who Jesus loved, or being the one leaning on Jesus' bosom. Okay, that makes, doesn't make a lot of sense to us when we think of how was he leaning on Jesus' bosom, how was he leaning up against Jesus. Well, in our day, we sit at a dining room table, or we sit at a couch with a TV tray. We sit up at a table to eat. If you've ever seen, I think it's Michelangelo's painting of the Last Supper, um, there, there might be some recollection of, of, of that um, uh, in, in, in our mind's eye from that painting. But we have to understand, in the Jewish culture, when they would be at a table for a meal, there would be a reclining position with their heads toward the table and their feet back behind them. The table would be low and they would be leaning forward almost in a a position of lying down. Now, it's hard for us to comprehend. Me, I like to sit up when I eat. Uh, I don't like to be uh, lying down uh, sideways or on my back. I mean, that'd be hard to do anyway, right? Especially if you're trying to take a drink but they would be in a reclining position, leaning or lying toward the table, and they would be in close quarters, and John would have been lying, sitting in a reclining position up closest to Jesus, to to his chest, to his breast area. So that's how John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is, is not in any way, shape, or form bragging. He's not trying to make himself appear like the one who was closest to Jesus. He is simply, in humility, expressing the fact that he was there next to Jesus and that it was a wonder to him and an amazement that Christ would even love him. And we can go to other passages, such as John 19, verses 26 and 27, John 20, verses 2 through 9, John 21 and verse 1, and John 21 and verses 20 through 23 and we see other places where John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved or as uh, he does here, the one leaning on Jesus's bosom. So here we are in this in this in this at this meal the, the, the last supper at the Lord's table, this Passover meal and, and there's this question that's begun to, Come around the table. Is it I? Who is it? And Simon Peter speaks up, as would be typical. Simon Peter, of course, opens up his big mouth, and he beckoned to Jesus, in verse 24, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He, he's point-blank asking Jesus who it is. And then we see in verse 25, he then lying on Jesus' breast, that's John, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? So then John chimes in and Jesus says in verse 26, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And then verse 27, a verse that is difficult, hard to completely comprehend. And after the sop, Satan Entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, "That thou doest, do quickly." Now again, commentators debate: Did the devil, as an angel, literally take over Judas's body? Some say that he did. Some just simply refer to it as a particularly demonic oppression. Possession, influence, or obsession. Wherever uh, a person wants to land on that, and I'm not going to be overly dogmatic one way or the other, the point is that there was a particularly evil influence that goes beyond even just a, a, a normal, what we would refer to as a, a human evil. There's the, 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 the suspect who was just arrested at, uh, uh, I guess was out in Pennsylvania with the murder of those four college students over in, uh, I think it was Idaho. And we, we think of some of the serial killers and we think of some of the wicked, just evil, heinous crimes that are committed. And we think, how did anybody get to that level of such diabolical evil? And some of them, yes, there, there, of course, is some sort of satanic influence. And uh, there's, there's, there's different things that we could talk about. I don't want to get into too much of that. But to betray God's Son, the God-Man, Jesus Christ, to betray Him, this is a particularly unique, diabolical evil that took the level of the devil himself entering Judas where the devil himself has such a possession or an influence over Judas's body and mind that Judas would go to this depth of evil to betray the very son of God. And we we don't know of any other person who ever reached such depths of evil. Nowhere in history, in the Word of God, is it ever described that the devil ever influenced or occupied or possessed someone in, in this way. Only Judas is it ever said of this kind of, of evil. But it does, if, without going on too much of a rabbit trail, it does give us some warning about opening ourselves up to spiritual evil, to satanic deceptions. In our culture today, especially around Halloween, but it's not just Halloween. It's in the depths of the internet. It's on most of the streaming channels. It's on much of the entertainment and and movie industries that you can get to certain forms of depravity that involve a spiritism and a satanic activity that often is accompanied by immorality and drunkenness and drug use. There is a store in the mall named New Age. You walk by and you get the heebie-jeebies. You look in there and you're wondering what is growing among the shelves and in the clothing racks. It's weird, it's almost oppressive to walk by. Those places are dangerous. These crack houses and these drug houses and some of the places that drug and alcohol, drugs and alcohol are rampant, where there's these nightclubs and these parties where there is the music and the lights and the sound and it's an orbiting, thumping sound and it, causes people to have mind-altering experiences, and there's often drugs and alcohol that are influencing this. This is dangerous stuff. New Age spiritism and religious activities of that kind are extremely, extremely dangerous and open ourselves up to spiritual, demonic oppression. We're never told in the Bible to empty our minds. Never. We're to have the mind of Christ. We're to have a sound mind. We're we're to gird up the loins of our mind. We're never told to empty our minds. But this transcendental meditation, these secret recitations, these mind-altering activities, again, that are often accompanied by drugs and alcohol, these occultic-type activities open one up to serious demonic and destructive influences that result in some of the worst forms of behavior and immorality and violence and wicked actions but Judas in his opening himself up to satan himself and betraying christ it's a warning to us not just of a of a spiritism and the influence of Demonic activity, but also the danger of becoming bitter and angry toward God and rejecting Christ outright. Judas at some point became disenchanted with Christ. He's not doing everything that I think he should do. He became bitter. He became angry. He he became upset. He did not want to follow Jesus anymore. Jesus wasn't doing everything that Judas felt like Jesus should do. He, he, He wasn't the political leader. Judas didn't see himself anymore as the right hand in the kingdom. Whatever it was that ultimately caused Judas to reject Christ, it's a warning to all of us of the danger of bitterness and anger of beginning to call God unfair and unjust and beginning to accuse God of our sinful choices and blaming God for the bad things that happen in our life as if it is God's fault. And I've watched people who have the root of bitterness that springs up in their heart and it's like a vine that just takes over. And they can't see life In any other way except through that bitterness and that injustice. In our culture now with critical theory and expressive individualism, everybody is a victim. And I have an excuse for being bitter and angry and on and on it goes. And no wonder we live in a culture of despair and selfish individualism. And everybody wants to talk about all their injustices and how everything is done against them. And so now, even on the basketball court, because a foul is called, a student, an athlete, goes over to the sideline and punches a referee, cold clocks him, practically knocked him out, makes the headlines. Because of a foul that was called. That the and actually the guy was only traveling. He thought it was a foul, and the referee was calling a travel. And the athlete went over and cold-clocked the referee. Because there was an injustice, and I deserve to get the right call every time, and I want my way all the time. I get what I want, when I want it, how I want it, and you're going to give it to me, and you're going to celebrate it when I get it. And that's the way Judas lived, and he became disenchanted with Christ, and he resorted to a despicable evil. And it's a warning to us not just of hypocrisy, but of the root of bitterness and how it can destroy our life and it can lead even to apostasy. Judas, again, he had fooled everyone. They didn't even think it was Judas who could possibly commit such an evil. Verse 28, "...now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag." that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. They thought he was leaving on official business. Judas had all of the disciples fooled. My dad used to say this, and you've probably heard it. You can fool some of the people all the time. All of the people, some of the time. But you can't fool all the people all of the time. And you can't fool God any of the time. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse number 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Hebrews 4 and verse number 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him, With whom we have to do. Judas could fool the disciples, but he couldn't fool Christ. He couldn't fool God. And his heart was revealed. That is the exit of a false disciple, but we also see in this passage the instruction, the instruction to true disciples. Jesus made a prophetic statement back in verse 19. Let's back up again to verse 19. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. He is just making reference, as he has talked about Judas, making reference to one of them not being among the chosen, one that would fulfill scripture, as we just talked about from Psalm 41. He would lift up his Heal against me. He said, now I tell you before it come that when it has come to pass, ye may believe that I am. And then you'll notice that the word he, the pronoun he, is in italicized print. Added by the King James translators to help understand and clarify the passage. But literally, what Jesus is saying, that when it has come to pass, ye may believe that I am. Once again, Jesus is making reference to the fact that He is the I Am. This is a prophetic statement. They would understand more. They would understand better. They would appreciate what Jesus was saying a little bit more, actually a lot more, after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. After all of what happens at the crucifixion and Judas' betrayal and Judas' suicide and then the resurrection and then the ascension, then it would kind of all, in a sense, connect all the dots and it would strengthen their faith and there would be a deeper knowledge and understanding and appreciation of God and Jesus Christ and for all that Jesus had taught them and had told them and exemplified before them. It's almost like a child. We trust our parents as a a child. I know we get to be about 15, 16, 17, and all of a sudden our parents don't know anything. Dad is a doofus. Mom is nothing but a tyrant, right? Our kids get to be about 15, 16. We've been there, maybe even, hopefully not too badly, but we've been there as a kid, 15, 16. I know it all. I got it all figured out. Mom and dad have been saying the same thing for 15 years. I got the world at my fingertips, and I don't need to listen to my mom and dad anymore. Whoa really? Okay. And then some of those kids go off and they, they join the army and they have a drill sergeant tells them what to do, right? <laughs> or they enter into corporate America or they enter into a fast food restaurant and they have a boss, they have a manager, or wherever they enter the work world and the boss or the manager says you're going to do it this way or you're going to get fired. Or they have a boss or a manager who's not a very good one and they have to learn to deal with a bad manager or a bad boss and the life lessons that come with that. But we listen to our parents, at least, hopefully, <laughs> while we're little, hopefully we don't become too rebellious in our teenage years, but it's something about later in life that we begin to appreciate our parents a little bit more, or a lot more. We begin to realize, oh, the things that they were trying to tell us were for our good, so that we wouldn't make the same maybe dumb mistakes that we made as parents as when we were kids, or whatever it might be, we, we kind of grow up, we mature and we, and we realize, you know, maybe I've been too hard on my mom and dad. Uh, maybe they really didn't know what they were talking about. And as we maybe get married and have kids, it really begins to hit home. Wow. My mom and dad worked this hard to provide for me. They sacrificed to be able to do all this. We begin to realize how much they invested in our lives. Things that didn't maybe make sense 10, 15, 20 years ago, wow, they make a lot of sense now. As a matter of fact, we find ourselves repeating the very same things that our parents said to us. And now they're coming out of our mouths to our kids, to our grandkids. you know. And it's like, where did that come from? And we have a deeper understanding and appreciation. It's almost like that with the disciples. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you will understand better. Trust me. Believe what I am saying. It will make a lot more sense in just a short time. And you will then have a job to do. I will be gone, but you have a big responsibility to go forward with the gospel. Verse 20, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. This is a parallel passage to the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. It's a very similar passage to verse 20. You have a responsibility as I am fulfilling God's redemption plan, as I go back into glory, as I go back into heaven. You have a responsibility to go forth with the gospel and those that receive you as you proclaim the truth of God's word, as you proclaim the gospel, those that receive you are receiving me. That is an incredible responsibility and that is an incredible privilege. We have a responsibility with the truth of God's word to live it and to declare it, to live in our homes, to live in our workplaces, to live it out faithfully. To not be the hypocrite that Judas is, and to share the gospel, and to be obedient to the word of God, what a tremendous privilege, and what a tremendous responsibility. And in a sense, we become like the feet of Jesus, in going forth, and sharing the gospel, and being the salt and the light that we should be for God's glory. What a tremendous privilege that we have. I don't know if the disciples fully comprehended it and understood it at the time, but they would, and they would take that responsibility seriously. And throughout the book of Acts, we see the disciples going forth and preaching the gospel boldly, even in some cases to the point of martyrdom. But then in this instruction to his disciples, not only does he declare his deity, not only does he commission them to go forth with the gospel and to minister the truth, But he also declares his glory and the glory of God. We see the word glory or glorify five times in verses 31 and 32. Jesus is entering into the final steps, the final stage of God's redemption plan. While he was here on this earth, going to the cross and then to rise from the dead and to ascend into glory. Then he's pointing once again to God's glory in verse 31, as we read earlier in our scripture reading. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. God's glory is all of God's attributes. Jesus is going to bring glory to God. Now think about this for a minute. As Christ dies on the cross, as He rises again, as He ascends up into glory, the redemption plan of God is complete. Christ Himself will say, it is finished. Even the death of Jesus Christ on the cross brings glory to God. A despicable act of evil, of trait victorious proportions of betrayal, God overrules and brings glory and provides for the redemption of mankind through this great act of evil. And through it, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and His ascension, we experience all those who repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Christ experience the soteriological doctrines of justification, of adoption, of imputation, of propitiation, of sanctification. These are all fulfilled and put on display. And again, they are made efficacious to all who come to Christ in repentance and faith in Him and Him alone. John already made reference to this. When he spoke of Jesus' incarnation in John 1, in verse 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We wouldn't know justification. We wouldn't know sanctification. We wouldn't know propitiation and imputation. We wouldn't know those great soteriological doctrines if Jesus had not come and died on the cross and rose again for our sins. That is part of the glory of God that is displayed in the crucifixion, in the fulfillment of God's redemption plan. And then, because of that, there is one day glorification when all things will be made new. As we went through the ark, as we went through the Creation Museum this past week, and I love how in the Creation Museum as they take you through the exhibits and you come down to the end And they take you and they walk you through the plan of salvation. And at the very end, there's consummation. There is the glorified, eternal state that we as believers will experience for all eternity because of what Christ did. And every single one who receives Christ as their Savior, who repents of his or her sin, and puts their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone, receives this and will experience this by the promise of God and by Jesus Christ and Him alone. What an incredible, overwhelming thought. And He says in verse 33, in tenderness, as He speaks to God's glory, He refers to them as little children in verse 33. A word that is only used here in the entire book of John. It's also used in his epistles. But it expresses the tenderness and the concern that Jesus had for his disciples. And in the second part of verse 33, he says, Ye shall seek me, yet a little while I am with you, yet ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go ye cannot come. So now I say to you, what is Jesus talking about? He is simply saying that he will experience the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension alone. They would not go through those things. They would not experience those things, and certainly not at the level to which he experienced them as the God-man, but he would eventually return to the glory that he shared with God the Father. John 17, in verse number 5, in his priestly, in his high priestly prayer, he And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. Jesus would return to the glory He shared with the Father before His incarnation. They would not experience the exact same sufferings in the exact same way, but they would have this mission to carry forth the gospel. He said, I told the Jews, there was religious leaders who didn't believe in me, that they wouldn't even go with me to heaven. They can't go with me even to heaven because they rejected me. You have accepted me. You will experience heaven. But before you go to heaven, you have a job to do. You have a responsibility. You have a commission to go forth with the gospel, to carry forth the witness of Jesus Christ, of my work on the cross of God's redemption plan, you have that responsibility to go forth with the gospel. And for some, it would result in martyrdom. There are some who take passages like this, like the Mormons, and they say, well, Jesus is saying that you can become a god. No, that's not what this passage is saying. Jesus wasn't a human spiritual being who descended from another spiritual being and then... or. became flesh in some way and then eventually became a god and his work on the earth eventually became a god and you can do the same that's not at all what this passage is saying the mormons they they, they totally misconstrue and add to and convolute the the scriptures to to try to make passages like this say that you too can become a god no that's not what this passage is saying and then there's the word faith movement among the charismatics who who take a passage like this and they try to say we'll see We have been called to do the same miracles that Jesus and the apostles did. See, you have been commissioned to do miracles like Jesus and the apostles, and you can create your own destiny. If you just say the right words, you can make the good things happen in your life that you want to happen. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're not going to experience everything that I experience in the way that I experience it. Only I can. It's what God has called me to do, and I'm going to glorify God in it. But you have a responsibility to go forth. To continue in the mission that I have called you to do. And to continue to live. And what is that commission? What does that involve? It involves our last point today, the commandment. To every true disciple. What is that commandment? To love one another. To love one another. How is it a new commandment? Hadn't it not been said before, Deuteronomy 6 and verse number 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might? Had it not been said in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself? What about Matthew 22, where Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind? This is the first and great commandment, and the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So how was it a new commandment? It was new in that it was a new standard for love. Based upon Christ's example and the indwelling Spirit who would empower them to live out this new commandment of love for one another. This is not a sappy, therapeutic love that affirms everyone in their choice, in their behavior, in their identity, in their lifestyle, whatever they choose to do. We just affirm them in it. Whatever identity they have, we just affirm them in that. That's not the kind of love Jesus is talking about. It's not a love that confronts no one about any sin nor holds anyone to the standard of God's truth out of fear of being intolerant or exclusive. That's not the love he's talking about. He's not talking about a win at all costs type of attitude in relationships. But rather he's talking about a love that chooses to do what is God's best for the other person. An agape love that sacrifices, that gives, that serves, that Jesus had just exemplified in his washing the disciples' feet. A love that chooses to build, to restore, and to renew relationships so that each person is conformed to the image of Christ. This is the love that we should have. This is the commandment. For all of us as his disciples, that we choose to love one another, to sacrifice, to serve one another, to endure, to forgive, who desires the best, God's best, conformity to Christ, humility, faithful and trustworthy. The love that is described in First Corinthians thirteen: charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. All things. That's the love that we have been called to, that we have been commanded to live out. Not an idolatrous love of selfish pleasures, lust that is so magnified and glorified by the world today. Not a social justice love that simply tries to reform or improve the culture without confronting sin or reaching the soul. But a true love that comes from a love for God that results in a humble love and sacrifice for others and chooses to love because we want what is best for that person, God's best. And in our serving others, God deals with us and purges and sanctifies us as we love others. Peter then speaks up once again. He says, Lord, whither goest thou? Peter said in verse 37, Lord, why can I I not follow thee now? He says, I'm going to live out this love. I'm going to do this. If anybody can prove this love, anybody can show this love, anybody can keep this new commandment, it's me, Lord. I'll do it. This is me, Peter. Remember me? I walked on the water. I was at the transfiguration. If anybody is going to love, if anybody is going to obey, if anybody is going to serve, it's going to be me. I'm with you, Lord. And then Peter gets a big heaping dose of humble pie, doesn't he? Verse 38, Jesus answered him, wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Sometimes we have to come down to the lowest place, be humbled by God for us to truly be used of the Lord because we're too full of ourselves. And in order for us to fulfill and to obey this new commandment, we have to humble ourselves. We have to think of ourselves as a zero with the lines rubbed out. And humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and then he will lift us up. And with that humble love for God, then we will be able to obey that new commandment of love for one another. May that be true of us in Berean Baptist Church in the year 2023. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, as we start off this new year, we are overwhelmed with your greatness and your goodness, your holiness and your love. We're so undeserving, but Lord, you have called us to this time and place and to love one another, to live out in obedience this new commandment with a freshness and a realness. Lord, that will transform not only our life, but transform our homes, our church, And, Lord, enable us to be a witness and an example and a testimony and influence for you. Lord, that will influence others for Christ. Lord, may that be true of us. Lord, we pray that you do your work in our hearts as we close this service. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jake is going to come and lead us in one stanza. Stanza number three. We sang this hymn a few moments ago. One hundred and forty-seven will stand. And we'll sing147 stands the number three of "This is my Father's world." If God has spoken to your heart, you can do business with the Lord, even as we sing. If we can help you any way after the service, we'd be happy to do so. Jake's going to come and lead us. 147 stands the number three of "This is my Father's world.")